Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. And you are listening to joining us in media's res. This is giving the mic to the wrong person. I am your host, Jeremy, joined once again on a cold and rainy Portland night in our uh, not quite as freezing as it was a few weeks ago during our last episode record. Joined by another folks with a, yet another edifying episode of entertainment and something att- uh, approaching information, but usually just um, the vocal equivalent of shit posting. Um, I've gathered a. Uh, a lovely group of folks who have voted, um, volunteered their Monday night to join us and just go around the table for everybody. Uh, please introduce yourself to the viewing audience, starting with our usual co-host and go. Hey, everybody. It's your old pal, Garrett. I didn't realize I was volunteering for this. I thought I would get a paycheck at the end, Jeremy. Our Patreon is uh, doesn't even cover my own uh, oh. Patreon addiction. So uh, we do have a Patreon, ladies and gentlemen. You, too, can help support this show at uh, with just a donation of up to a dollar, of a dollar a month at least. Uh, Patreon.com slash giving the mic. I guess if this is the first show you're listening to, I'm Garrett, and I'm on other episodes, so you can go back into the catalog. Won't that be something? I love the adventure you're about to go on. Yes, yeah, so there's a whole there's a whole catalog of uh, forty odd episodes for you to peruse and enjoy. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Eric. Uh, I'm one of the economists here. I was told we'll be talking about economics. This is true, so pretty much. Uh, hi, I'm Mitch. Uh, I am also allegedly an economist. Um, you know, semi professionally and certainly amate- amateurly, armchairly. Um, whatever the appropriate, uh, uh, you know, label is. And, um, yeah, we're going to talk about some cool economic shit. Do any of you guys want to give your academic backgrounds or? Yeah, well, uh, Mitch can do it for both of us because we've got the same <laughs> background. Yeah. So, um, so Eric and I, Eric and Mitch, uh, we, we went and got a PhD in economics, uh, from a heterodox economics program at the university of Missouri, Kansas city. Uh, so our training is specifically sort of in a um, radical political economy perspective with a heavy dose of institutional economics and post-Keynesian economics. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I'm Youssef, and it's my pleasure to be here with you all. I heard a lot of good things about this podcast, so that's why I'm here. Uh, I've been an economist for almost 30 years, teaching at local colleges and universities, and uh, um, currently, uh, I'm part-time blogger, I'm part-time bicyclist and leisure walker around Portland's downtown. Um, I have recently uh, been focusing my thoughts and writing uh, on political economy, uh, because that's where the major problem currently is in America, that is this duopoly of political system that we have, we have to do something about that, Jeremy. And a fun bit of trivia for listeners, uh, I took two classes from Yusuf about 15 years ago. So, Closing the loop. This is a reunion a long time coming. Thank you, Garrett. My heart is full. It's a pleasure. (laughs) And yet yet more proof that uh, Portland is a smaller place than you think. 
Uh, anyway, yes, thank you for all. Uh, thank you. I feel like Neil Breen at like a dinner seed. Thank you all for joining me. Um, everybody, uh, once again, yeah, thanks for joining me because I, I wanted to hold this up, uh, do this topic because I wanted, thinking I wanted to do a um, pretty much an episode about, I guess you could call it economics, but a lot of it is just economics and why we why uh, it is only talked about in certain ways. And so I guess the question, the starting topic, <laughs> what is it, the... Um, what was the uh, what was the PBS arguing group with John? John McLaughlin. Yeah, the McLaughlin group is uh, you know issue one. Um, <laughs> the first topic for us all is uh, outsourcing jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Joseph, right. go. Uh, right, it's it, what it's kind of it, it was yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's like why do um, yeah. why <laughs> why do we as a society uh, <laughs> envision and talk about talk about economics like the way we do? Yeah, uh, my. Um, Issue number one, Garrett, is concentration of power by the political and business elite. This is a serious issue, and I really think that both conservatives and liberals actually agree with this issue. But the bottom line is, of course, how to go about breaking this concentration of power by the elites. And I'm sure um, all of you here uh, would have some good opinion and ideas about how to go about breaking this concentration of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that's a pretty good entry entry point is to talk about power. Um, I think that uh, economics generally, as it's received in the sort of mainstream, uh, doesn't have a theory of power. Um, they have a theory of allocation, they have a theory of prices, they have a theory of, well, they sort of have a theory of, mar- they think they have a theory of markets. Um, but they have a theory that sort of puts individuals as atoms in a space without actually having innate power or not. And, and so that sort of decenters the role of power in shaping um, the political economy of markets and production systems. And so, you know, if we're going to talk about outsourcing, for instance, um, the reason that we have outsourcing is because it fits a certain logic of, uh, you know, maintaining power in the hands of certain elites. Uh, in a you know sort of international division of labor sense, and then Jeremy, were you were you trying to also address the primacy of sort of economics in our in our sort of uh, 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 national discourse? Is that what you were trying to talk about? I think also? that too. Yeah, about how a lot of uh, especially with uh, like with, our, with mass culture and mass media, you um, economics are treated at you know. Somebody once said that at one point, um, public discourse changed with refer- when they started. When uh, maybe it was just the uh, the people got got really into the whole like invisible hand metaphor a little bit too hard, and so whenever they started talking about the markets, capital M, it was ju- it was like the almost like the like post deist thing. But they were just talking about God, and as a result, it, you know, uh, anybody who, uh, who could, could claim enough to be, you know, ca- you know, I'm well, I'm an economist, capital E, that would get you know. Uh, and whose message and point of view would would fit in a certain um, within very narrow confines would get you know airtime, and it's and, and it effectively you know like a professional like high status media folks would treat them as like high priests with the you know who could you know who could deconstruct you know reality of, of and explain all of what happened, or if you look at someone like. Um Alan Greenspan, for example, like like 
who had literally a like a guru status. You know what I mean? Like call him the maestro. Yeah, is that what they called him? Yeah, yeah. Was, uh, Woodward wasn't it? Was Bob Woodward, Woodward. Woodward. Fucking suck up. Like, anyway. Uh, <laughs> fucking bootlicker. He's he a bootlicker. He absolutely <laughs> is. Given, uh, given uh, Greenspan's previous... Uh, like, pr- I'll previous, stand by that. Well, previous personal predilections and who exactly... Whose boots he quite possibly literally licked um, <laughs> about 25 to 30 years before the Reagan era. Um, Ayn Rand? Maybe. <laughs> um... I don't know if this is the way you were trying to take it, Jeremy. Well, something, but I, I, yeah, I do but think it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I read an article somewhat recently by Wolfgang Streak, and uh, he was kind of talking about like Fed chairman and 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 central bankers as sort of these high priests now in a system that isn't supported by the the same rationale that it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I think I'm taking things off course. But yeah, but it was something because like those one thing I was I wanted to start with of just like because I really really dis- just overtly hate like uh, like high, clueless high status pretentious people which um a lot of uh, and a lot of uh, mass media folks are well this well to, just thinking here you're not going to like economists. <laughs> well, that, well, no, well that's the thing but it's then that's well, that's part of it is just the um and I say this because like economics is something that that I know uh, relatively little about. I mean, I've most mo- the best economics texts that I've read are ones that are usually you know graphic illustrations of because I figure you know it's, uh, economics is taught through instructional comics and trying to find in fact finding comic introductions of economics that weren't really like you know free market assholes has been pretty difficult. Because there's actually a book out there called like the cartoon introduction of like to micro to microeconomics or the cartoon introduction to to macroeconomics, um, which if you look through or tur- you know you have to get about two thirds of the way through before they just start really they turn up the gain mm-hmm. on how much they really support um, you know like free market superalis. Um So it's like one of the reasons why you want to have it tonight just to throw up because I think just to start with. Just throw it out to y'all, like, you know, how did it become this exalted thing, and whose whose uh, interest does it serve? Don't you know whether they, you know, like I said, this you know uh, media complex, whether they're even like, you know, uh, aware of this or not, you know, that it has this just bizarre mystification around it. So if if I could offer to sort of jump in there, go for it. Um, so I think that if you go back to the sort of dawn of political economy. Um, what you see is that sort of proto-economists or political economists uh, served a very particular class role um, in the reproduction of class society and and the sort of transition from one system to another. And so political economy has its roots in explaining in a philosophical sense, in a very disciplined sense, um, why it is that sort of uh, mercantile or capitalist society is sort of superior to feudal society. Okay, and it sort of creates these categories of value um, and distribution to explain why it is that certain classes in society are entitled to that share. So they, they, they set out, I think, earnestly in some sense to try to explain what they think are natural phenomena um, for the way that sort of certain economic systems should work. But it's very structured in a class sense. So if you have like, you know, Adam Smith, for instance, that most people think of when you think about an old economist, like he was really trying to explain systematically and sort of scientifically why mm. it is that capitalists and not landlords should be entitled to, you know, sort of a larger piece of the pie. You know, and then you get like David Ricardo a little bit later who's trying to understand the source of profits and he's he's going against the landlords in a very 
very um, systematic way that Adam Smith didn't quite get. So, so the whole history of economic thought, all the way through Marx and all the way through the sort of bifurcation that happens in the late 19th century that ultimately results in what we have today is always about responding to the way that society is changing from a technological and economic sense. Um, so it's been a very long time in the making to where you have economists being at the kind of center of the they're they're part of the priestly class if you want to think of it that way now especially yes yeah so and so and so in the 1880s or 1870s really you start to see a, a major major shift um and you get the sort of emergence of of economics as we know it today and and you can't really understand that shift in the absence of what was going on in terms of the labor struggle worldwide mm-hmm. so you've got the sort of industrialization and the sort of um rationalization of production in on law in large in a large scale sense with railroad strikes um you know sort of grange movements uh and there's a sense that well you do have classes actually and they're becoming class aware and laborers are sort of um you know sort of bonding together and creating collective action problems uh and so you had to create a new economics to decenter that so you get to the individual you get to the sort of natural law piece that had sort of been lost in the beginning so um, it's it's always ideological, mm-hmm. and what is concealed uh, today is this is this idea that it's still ideological. Um, sort of pa- economics economists sort of pass themselves off as as being disinterested and objective scientists, but that's that's just false. Yeah, just professional technocrats. They're just you know yeah. they they know they, yeah they know what they're talking about, but they no this isn't ideological at all. Right. It's like it's like they're explaining like how a how a combustion engine works or something. Right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is just how it works. Right. And they have very, very physical analogies for that as well. You know? Yeah, yeah. How the systems of markets and prices equilibrate and yeah. find their balance. Yeah. So. In, a, in, a, you know, in a market uh, capitalist economy, uh, three pillars, in my view, uh, the price system, the profit system, prop- property rights, create the conditions for capital accumulation. I'm trying to lead this um, this little uh, comment to market con- uh, political and economic concentration. Mm-hmm. This urge to accumulate uh, inevitably leads to uh, what actually Karl Marx called little capitalists killing capitalists and big capitalists killing lots of little capitalists. A tendency to... Uh, to monopolize, concentrate, to, to concentrate, to destroy your competitors in all ways that you can. Of course, we saw that very clearly uh, during the robber barons uh, in here in, in America, and of course in 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s in in UK for a long, long time. So this is really the heart of the system that we do have currently is at the heart of this trend towards market concentration, in my view, basically. Well, and I was uh, I was thinking about that same thing recently, and it seems like, you know, that's a lot of talk you get right now. It's like, especially from people like more on the center left, you, you hear people say things like, well, you know, it's capitalism, but they're not playing by the right rules. And I'm mm-hmm. like, to me, those seem like the perfect rules for capitalism. Like, like ideally, there'd be one company at the end of it, and they precisely, would win. Precisely. You know what I mean? Like, precisely. And uh, and you, Garrett, earlier uh, mentioned uh, 
outsourcing as your no- number one issue, which is really uh, leads us to exactly the same trend, capital accumulation, monopoly. And once you captured the domestic market or national market, you have to go beyond national market. And that's where international finance capitalism emerges, where there is hardly any imperialism uh, corporate co- large corporation yeah. where there's not a banker on the board of directors and that is the essence of uh, in my view uh, economic concentration globally hey folks this is Jeremy just popping in here if you like what you're hearing why not help us uh, make the show support us for as little as a dollar a month donated through our patreon which is at patreon.com slash giving the mic every little bit helps thanks and the financial the global financialization of cap of capitalism like that seems like magic to me i mean is it magic i mean Anyone want to chime in? I don't know if it's magic or it's it's definitely mystified. It's I mean, like, like, they, they, it's they like they're creating, waving their hands. And, are they creating value? You know what I mean? Like, oh, let's talk about value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do, yeah. Do we do we want to get into yeah the, the Bitcoin theory of value? Such or yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if I'm taking this too far down the road too early, uh, go, well, let, let, let's roll with it. I think we should talk about value. Let's um, and I want to hear from Eric about value. Uh oh. But let's start with like Marxian value theory. Uh, you know, just very simply, you've got a sort of... Let's talk about that Serafian residual. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk about, yeah, the reduction of dated dated labor commodities. Um, no, we're not going to do that today okay. because I next cannot time, be compelled time. to sort of solve, uh, you know, talk about Serafian basic and... Uh, All right, some linear standard. algebra. There's a little bit and we'll move on. Yeah, just like, you know, give me a whiteboard. No, um... <laughs> So in you know, I can cut I can cut in the clip of uh, of uh, of Professor Richard Wolf, you know, writing out the ex- the equations on his yeah. uh, on the board in front of a in front of a, of a Harvard lecture if you want. But yeah. anyway, yeah. yeah, I mean, so in the beginning you have the labor theory of value basically. I mean, you sort of have like pre labor theory of value concepts such as like a sort of agriculture based system with the you know Francois Canet and his physiocrats, and uh, but really the first sort of systematic and scientific. Uh, you know, effort to explain the source of value was, you know, begins with with Adam Smith and is refined through Ricardo and Marx finishes the job mm-hmm. um, with a labor theory of value, which is for our uh, our 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 more uh, newly uh, acquired listeners. I, can, could anybody like offer a like a quick quick description? Yeah, yeah. So you um think think of it like this, like. You know, in the re- in a real sense, it, it takes so much material to produce something. It takes so much effort, so much work, so much raw material and time to produce something. And uh, if you can sell a product uh, for more than you paid for its material inputs, including labor, then you can realize value. Okay, and so what Marx is able to do at the end of the day that neither Smith nor Ricardo could do was explain how you can get something for nothing. Essentially, how do you squeeze something out of that yeah. that you haven't already paid for? And that is essentially by controlling a worker's yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and he introduces this concept of abstract labor uh, labor value embodied. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's it, it. It's really it doesn't need to be any more complicated than than saying a firm has total revenues, which is prices times quantity, and it has a set of costs, and you take the difference between those two, and you have profits. That's really all it is. 
But I, I want to hear from Eric about value and the f- source of value in a yeah. corporation because I think that's far more relevant. Oh, kind of relevant to the sorry uh, to the financialization yeah uh, issue. Yeah, I I don't know if I can if I can segue that out of the labor theory of value. Should we bridge it with uh, the utility theory of value? Yeah, that's that, that might be a a good way of doing it. So <clears throat> kind of pick up where Mitch left off there. After Marx kind of systematically demonstrated the logical implications of the labor theory of value, which was the fucking capitalists are taking your shit, um, right? Some a new group some of economists <laughs> arose just coincidentally and said, oh, "Actually, uh, labor is not the source of value because you know, capitalists can't be taking your shit. They've got to be uh, contributing value, of course." So yeah, that's where yeah, they society's best people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We have to we have to do, we have to defend our phony but only jobs, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the heroic. Entrepreneur and the yeah, marginal yeah. product of capital. Yes. Yeah. So that gets into the utility theory of value, which is the crux of of mainstream economics uh, still today. Which is basically saying value comes from you liking the stuff you're consuming. Well, who gives you that value? The businesses. Although actually, there's a circular process. Right. Well, um, but that's a that's sort of a mystification, right? Like it's like the perceived exactly. value of yeah. the consumer is actually what value. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an like, entirely subjective valuation yeah. criteria, which and, is real scientific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, like, and the way it actually translates, not to, to <laughs> like uh, Beanie Babies, not to do yeah. a full class on on economic theory here, is the way it actually translates is well, how do you know how much value that consumer got? And the the answer to that is well, how much were they willing to pay for it? So you can see. Immediately, the market price then starts to represent yeah. Uh, yeah. value, and you can see there's it's a tautological argument. Well, that gave seven dollars worth of value because they were because uh, that's how much they paid. Well, how do you know that's how much value they got? Well, because that's how much they paid. So, Which is and you can <laughs> you can kind of move that into financialization, right? Well, you know, modern corporations are dominated by CFOs or CEOs who act very much like CFOs, they're doing mostly financial kind of machinations uh, for those corporations. Well, how do you know they're contributing value? Well, they're making shitloads of money. Right. Somebody's right. paying them shitloads of money. Yeah. So they must be must contributing be that value. So can you define a t- uh, It's just making the same arguments two different ways and saying you've uh, proven something. Circular reasoning. In yeah, it's a good. It's a good it's definition circular reasoning. Is uh, circular escaping. reasoning. Is circular reasoning. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if it were tautology is all the way down. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I sounded like Nigel Tufnell there for a reason. <laughs> when you really explore value, when, you, when you're talking about financialization, and you're talking about things like Beanie Babies, and you're talking about Bitcoins, and any, like that becomes a very um, sort of institutional and sort of a socially derived uh, phenomenon. It's like you can't explain it by reference to individual relations, but you have to sort of step back and look at the system as a whole and and think about you know what con- what contradictions are driving uh the emergence of those those sort of asset price inflations or that sort of thing it becomes not in any way related to any material conditions of production and it's not in any rela- way related to any individual sort of use value right right like if you look at like a work of art that sells for millions of dollars like yeah. materials and time are relatively insignificant in that Right. So the labor theory falls apart a little bit, but then the utility, 
But then what does the utility theory have to say about something like that? You know what I mean? I mean, that's the thing is you can do anything. That's, that's, it's, it's the main tool of this kind of priesthood of economists right. is the ability to say, well, look, there's a, there's a price on that, and I can then tell you whether that price reflects the actual value, or I can make an argument for how the market wasn't working right and therefore didn't quite reflect. It becomes uh, very ad hoc. Value. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like you need me to be the guy to tell you exactly why this yeah. and it is a priesthood then yeah. it's it's a yeah, it's a magisterium yeah you're, you're rolling the bones or whatever you know mm-hmm. what i mean like yeah i was gonna say how would you um how would you separate the uh suss out the difference of of say value versus price or cost mm-hmm. to someone because a lot of it is people are like you know that's that's because a lot of times you know value just becomes like this uh, yeah. you know that's good value or yeah. i yeah, i think the, the joke that i always say is you know i buy you know, so much stuff off, you know, used off Craigslist or, you know, for example, almost the entirety of the audio gear that you see here is all like used gear because I think my, my take on it was, you know, it's one with used audio gear, like the 80 20 rule is in effect where you'll get like 80% of the value for 20% of the cost, which I have absolutely no idea if that's true or not. And I could, and there's no possible way I could measure that, but, you know, it makes sense at the time. So I go with it. Yeah. So, like I said, how would you like separate, you know, what dollar amount from value? Yeah, that's a very actually good question. Uh, obviously, price, uh, as we economists uh, all agree, uh, is determined by supply and demand. Value, not so. Uh, value comes from, as uh, Mitch uh, explained very nicely, from the amount of labor embedded in the product that we consume. And, and that value, in part, uh, or wholly, I should say, is, uh, also comes from the fact that what it takes to feed a worker, not only a worker, but his entire household, right? Uh, just enough to make a living, obviously. Yeah, this is the the expansion of social reproduction theory. It's not only exactly not only you know what does you know what does exactly. the worker do there you know how exactly. does she get to work? Very yeah. good. Therefore, but does price do that? Does price of labor do that? Of course not. We have seen the middle class shrinking, the working class becoming underclass. Precisely because the value of what they put into production is by far much higher than the price of labor they receive. And that gap is precisely exploitation. And then, so the, the price of labor in this case, we're not, we're just, that's just, that is in the form of their wage. That's correct. That's correct. And or salary. Exactly. Exactly. So we, see, folks, we try to teach stuff. We try to teach stuff on there, along with you know Stephen King jokes and whatnot. There's a yeah, and I I, I think that's right. I think that uh, I would I would go sort of a, a a bit more on price, and I would say that uh, oftentimes prices are not necessarily established by supply and demand, but are really sort of. I figured one of us was going to have to. Yeah, Correct. We kind of have to. Yeah. So it's like prices are oftentimes administered. In fact, the important prices. Like it, it's it's quite likely that you know the sort of transact the bilateral transaction you have with a Craigslist person mm. that's a much more sort of um, interpersonal relationship where you settle on a, a just price in a sense right but um, but you know in like the price for a new vehicle in many labor markets actually just the the, the going wage that's all sort of settled um, administratively so some sort of powerful actor in a market just establishes a going price correct market pri- uh, market yeah. pricing is a good example of yeah, that. yeah. Which, so, which is fundamentally consistent with the kind of 
classical Marxian That's right. ideas that Yusuf's saying here. Yeah. You say, I'm going to pay the people five bucks an hour to produce this, yeah. and I'm going to charge them seven bucks an hour to buy it back from me, mm-hmm. and the two bucks is, uh, is your exactly. profit. That's how you reproduce a non-productive class, which is, in Absolutely. this case, the bourgeoisie. And one uh, example uh, that I can give you uh, as to determine uh, the, uh, basically the gap between the value and the price would be, or rather in terms of labor, the price of labor, which is wage and value, the quantity of uh, goods that it takes to feed a family for reproduction purposes, um, is this example. Uh, suppose a, a brain surgeon who earns $400,000 a year. One day he goes to his office he sees empty office. There is no instrument, nothing to work with. What is the value of his labor on that day for the employer? Zero. On that day, the employer lost on this brain surgeon. But who makes all those instruments? Suppliers. Low-wage workers in faraway places, they contributed the, la- the value for this $400,000 a year salary physician. But how much were they paid? Nothing. So that is really a good example, in my opinion, uh, the difference between value. Who really creates the value? You know, I, I think that's an excellent example because it allows us to talk about economic systems as, as a series of um, very real and very concrete and discrete value chains. Like, we, you know, when they teach Economics 101, it's just sort of this abstract market where you just go to the bazaar and you can trade boots for apples and apples for, <laughs> for whatever. But that's just absurd. That's not really how it, an economic economy is structured. It's really a set of very real and contractual and relational systems exactly from like from from soup to nuts basically and so somewhere in the the value chain you've got someone producing an input that's later used in the production process and exploitation happens under capitalism happens at every step in the value chain right and you can have someone like a surgeon who's highly paid in relative terms to other people but that the the owners of that whole system of of control and production are still exploiting the whole all, all those right. embodied. Absolutely. They're still workers. Yeah. Like that guy's still technically exactly. a worker. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, anyone who, whose income comes from wages is exploited. No doubt about that. Even that physician, brain physician who earns $400,000 a year. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like there should, like, that should blow people's minds more than it does. You know what I mean? Because I try to say that to people, and they're like, what, he makes $400,000 a year? That's great. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Uh, they compare themselves, their income, to others, and they're happy, but they don't realize they are exploited to the bone. Yes. And I think the that that kind of tautology I was talking about is ideologically, I was talking to a friend back in Kansas City about this, uh, it's, it's ideologically ingrained in people. They don't even realize that they see somebody making 400k a year, regardless of what they're doing. Even if they're doing those YouTube videos where they say, "Look at my Lamborghini," <laughs> if they're making that much money, I don't think that guy's making that much money. But uh, then they must be doing buy something my pamphlets, right. sign up for my training. <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah, the the money is proof of contribution yeah. rather yeah. than the uh, right. you know other way around. Right. It was, yeah, the system must work. Otherwise, it wouldn't. You know, would you know? It couldn't possibly be otherwise. Yeah. You know, uh, the hard work must be valorized.
Well, speaking of valorized, if a uh, minor, uh, minor jargon side note, can someone please explain to me? I think, oh God, I can't remember if I'm going to get the phrase right, but I think it's what is it? The valorization of value. Oh yes, I think that. Um, and God, I am not an expert on these sub yeah. sort of sub fields in Marxian theory, but, but, this, yeah, but this is like a, it's like a phrase that kept popping up when I was looking yeah. at it because I was reading reading yeah reading uh, Ernest Mandel's like formation of economic thought in Marx and Engels, and he kept he keeps mentioning this, and it's like that okay, it's like I know plenty of weird terms, but I've never heard that one before. So, you know, and I could be I'm I'm not the final authority on this, but my understanding of it is that. Um, when Marx discusses the val the valorization of value, he's getting into a realm that's discussing like sort of like second order and third order degrees of separation of the value extraction process. So, so if you have a um, so once you've gone to the step of extracting surplus value from workers, and then you've managed to sort of concentrate industry and control resources, and then you're able to extract essentially what I think is intangible value, probably in, better understood in a Veblenian sense. Mm -hmm. Um, then you've you've then you've entered a realm that moves a little bit away from sort of direct material relations and into sort of capitalizing social relationships um, that are sort of um, just intangible in nature, almost entirely intangible. So like owning a patent and and profiting purely from a patent, I think would be an example mm -hmm. of the valorization of, ca of value. Would uh, so the, the rentier sort of like level of things like like making your money right. off of rent space yeah is that what you're talking about it's like it's yeah it's other economists in the radical tradition or the sort of heterodox tradition would describe it as um the extraction of rents or quasi rents by the ownership of of intangible and corporal property and a particular example that i have no idea why this popped into my head would would an example be Again, this is again really random and particular. Michael Jackson buying all the publishing rights to the Beatles' music. Hmm. Does anyone remember? Does remember, remember this? This that, is yeah. this I is the, during the during the say 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 era. Well, I think that's absolutely. You're, you're taking. I mean, yeah. what is a what is a publishing right if not basically a patent to a creative idea? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like it is a patent in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, um, I, I think. Um, that's a really hard one to draw boundaries around. I, mm. I, I I don't know that I can put the Michael Jackson purchasing of rights into that category. But what what I would do is like, is whoever whatever, imagine an abstract holding company. Here here's a here's a good example. So ABC or Alphabet I think is called is the holding company that owns Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. They have an initiative right now that's like sort of selling um, data like sort of transportation modeling services to cities. Is this all? The, is this that Sidewalk Labs bullshit? It's the Sidewalk Labs bullshit, and. And it's you know trademark. In the one sense, there is there is production going on. There is production where workers are working to code and model stuff, and there there is sort of a use value where a city can understand better its transportation problems. It's a really good urban studies product, mm. but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it allows them to to capitalize and own and exclude others from the knowledge that's derived from that, and that becomes a very just pure. That's the purest form of capitalism, right? In it was a sense. In the very recent in, um, initi initiative that is that actually just got announced in either the, I think it was in the Oregonian that that they are that you know Google Alphabet is coming to Portland. They're trying to pitch here of this like smart. What do you want? Yeah, the, the sidewalk. Yeah, it's it's just called Sidewalk Labs. But what they did in uh, in a neighborhood in Toronto called Keyside. Um, Q U A Y S I D E, I think it's spelled. Is again, it's part. It's pretty much dump sensors everywhere. You know, the hyper surveilled city. 
Well, a plan for a high-tech, internet-connected neighborhood in Toronto has hit a major snag. Anne Kavukian, a high-profile advisor and former Ontario Privacy Commissioner, is resigning because she says her concerns are not being addressed. Now, Sidewalk Labs, a Google sister company, and Waterfront Toronto have submitted a proposal for a 12-acre community on the city's waterfront. The plan calls for the installation of data-gathering sensors such as pedestrian counters. Kavukian fears residents' privacy might be compromised. And one of the terms that they mentioned was called, yeah, data sovereignty is like who actually owns, you know, who should own and profit from the data that gets produced by, you know, the people just kind of like, you know, commuting to work back and forth. And one of the, a thing that I think um, similar that, again, you know, trying to collect all this data and profit is almost like we need a, um, like we need a term for what you could call data enclosure of like grabbing, you know, collecting and monopolizing like, you know, what is effectively just kind of like publicly generated information of like traffic of like, okay, how many people ride TriMet, you know, up and down Burnside in a day? It's going to be rough going for a while because I think a lot of people were, you know, we're even as like political or even theoretical movements are catching up to the stuff of like realizing, okay, how do you even like begin to talk about what these companies are doing, much less begin to like start like connecting what they are actually doing to like these, you know, kind of like um, well discussed theories of like, you know, exploitation that we know, like we know what everybody in these other fields look like when they're exploited, exploited, exploited. What does it actually look like when this kind of this kind of dynamic happens on like an extremely notional thing like um you know how many people do you have stomping you know it's like if you, you can put sensors in the sidewalk and measure say how many people walk by you know walk a certain a certain section of boardwalk mm-hmm. on like you know a the third friday in a july between say 8 and 9 p.m and you know do you want to take this information and then sell it back to the city and then they use it to adjust the rental price of you know having a food cart there mm-hmm. so are you saying are you saying are you trying to broaden the sense of exploitation from not necessarily a worker-based thing, but like just people going out and having the public sphere sort of monetized or, or does that make sense? Like, I think that's part of it. Is yeah. That what you're trying to say? It's very much, yeah, much like how like Facebook site, you know, uh, business model seems to be not just like sell, you know, f- having people stick around to, uh, on a, you know, stick around the site long enough to, to, you know, shove adverts into their timeline. But it's also to kind of like, you know, monitor every single like thing you stare at or don't stare That's at it. and then take the and take the little and yeah, if effectively yeah. you're running like a thousand behavioral simulations and you take those and you and then yeah. you know a- they, aggregate that aggregate that yeah. That, uh, that's um, Jeremy. I think uh, that's a very good point. The monitoring of the workers' work process from the very beginning of the capitalism has always been a major issue for capitalists. Get the most, churn out the most products. So now, what you're saying uh, is, in a way, uh, getting ahead of the crowd. Uh, so uh, this technology would allow. Uh, uh, the producers, those who control the market, to uh, to monitor people walking around the streets, and then capitalizing on what they learn from this monitoring process, and market the pro- product or sell a product. 
So it's again the theme. I think we started this discussion, and we can keep we keep coming back to it. It's about control. That's correct. Um, so you know when we you know we got to this place because we're talking about valorization of value. We're talking about sort of intangible concepts of value, and then smart like, lab system. Yeah, like second and third second and third order abstractions yeah. is like it's not not just like selling. I I I I attribute it you know similar to like uh, people not just like offering student loans. Oh. It is like it's like the weird trading and like the and it's almost like a, like a hedge like a hedge fund thing where like you're trading you're not only trading but you're making money off of the trades that are off of the trades of trades or something. You know, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you know, and and so and that's the extension. That is the if there is an end to capitalism, that's the sort of limit as you approach the end. Is like the increasing flourishing of different sort of hierarchical layers of value extraction on top of value extraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so in a sense, uh, all of economic theory and all of economic policy has always been about control. So as, as economists have developed their theories going way back and it's, you know, pretty explicit. If you look, if you, if you watch the uh, sort of Adam Curtis documentaries about kind of the, you know, economics in the sort of, you know, post-war period, it's very explicit that, you know, the Buchanan style sort of big, um, mm -hmm. public choice school was all about sort of a Randian um, social control mechanism. Even lefty economists like um, Abba Lerner wrote a book called The Economics of Control uh, in the 1940s or 1930s. And, and everyone understand, you know, there was a time where everyone was like, all the economists were self-conscious and self-aware that what they were trying to understand was a theory of social control. Yeah, mm. they would say it. They basically yeah. go, "Yeah, we need to get people to behave the right way." Yeah, yeah. John yeah. Bates Clark, uh, who's a sort of father of modern um, distribution theory, um, sort of became an economist because he was like, sort of, he's like, "How do we get the old time religion back?" And so, you know, like it's it's all breaking down in this sort of enlightenment post enlightenment period of machines, and people have like sort of given up on God. And so it's like, all right, well, we need a new God, and that, that's markets. That's price theory. That's, that's this and that and the other thing. And so, um, so you get to the 21st century, and everything's like, or, you know, sort of new God is, is like algorithms. Um, yeah. It's like smart planning, smart cities, but it's really about control. And it's just an elaboration of what we've been working on all along. Every, everyone, please say it with me now. All hail the algorithm. All hail the algorithm. All hail the algorithm. We love the algorithm. Anyway, sorry for sorry. We did. <laughs> There's a connection you're talking about. Uh, yeah. You know, capitalism kind of naturally trends into imperialism. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here is very similar. It's just on a. It's internal to the social organization itself. So. You think of you know the notion of Uber or Airbnb. It's an imperialism into the non-capitalist elements of your life. Mm -hmm. You've got a car. It's not part of your work right now, but we can invade that yeah. and make it a function of. And that's of what capital. I was. That's yeah. what I was trying and to get control, at. Yeah. yeah, was that was that they can't. It's no longer worker. You know, you know, boss or or capitalist worker. It is now like cap like capitalist consumer the capitalist mm. the capitalist is somehow getting the consumer to 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 um do things for them. like almost yeah. makes the consumer the worker now uh and that's what that's like, right. getting data is you know we all I mean? watch like, south park wednesday i assume now that's totally right like you um it's sort of a it's not a disillusion because you can't really do that you can't dissolve the producer from the consumer uh try as you might but what you can do is try to conceal that there are any producers at all 
and you can try to make yeah. everyone a consumer. Everyone is just a consumer of, of, of a given set of products that just exist from nature. And all we're doing is we're sort of consuming and, and, and saving or we're consuming and trading. But no one's really producing because if you're talking about production, now you have to talk about the conditions of production. Now you have to talk about where production mm-hmm. occurs. Now you can talk, talk about the machines. Like you had that example, Yusuf, with the doctor. The surgeon, and that's a really good opportunity to talk about the contingent relationship between capital and labor. Like, you don't just have capital that you can substitute independently to labor and come up with a putty production function. It's a very discrete recipe book. You know, to do surgery, to do brain surgery, you need fucking scalpels. You know, you can't just substitute with more labor. Um, And so these are... You know, anyway. Yeah, it's a um, uh, previous show with Jason. He made this point, and I never thought yeah. about it before. You know, it's like in any economics 101 class, what do you get? Oh, you got some shit in a factory, and people yeah. put it together. And it's like, right. well, that shit had to get to the factory somehow. Yeah. So you're already. Is that mm-hmm. the sort of thing you're talking it's about? It's exactly yeah. what I'm talking okay. about. So in uh, you know, in the courses that uh, Eric teaches and that um, – you, did you teach micro or macro? Uh, intro to history. Yeah. So in, in microeconomics, you present, um, you present production as just being this black box. So you say, okay, inputs go in. <laughs> you know, don't look behind the curtain, and then outputs come out, and there's some sort of uh, semblance of its rel- – if it's sort of relative productivity. Um you know, if, if it wasn't productive, it should shut down. That sort of an idea, um, but but no one talks about really what's going on inside the the factory, and because then you have to start to do some really really deep accounting. You have to say, okay, well, I went and I looked, and there's five five workers on that line, and it's always five workers per line. It's not ten workers per line. It's not one worker. It's five per line. And then then you start to talk about excess capacity. Then you start to talk about how prices are sort of on the margin or constant until until you're like running your machine up against its limit. And so it gets much more complicated and the whole theory, the whole ideological structure starts to fall apart once you explore those those sort of uh, um, what did Marx call it? The hidden the hidden abode of production. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for saying that. Just one of the things that I wanted to bring up is just it's one of the things that I keep like try to keep emphasizing even though I I'm at the uh, I don't have enough time to come up for the meetings is I think that at least with like with DSA or any union or leftist organization, like we need like, we need like goddamn near constant one ones for people mm-hmm. just to kind of like recover. Cause it's like, uh, as you said, people used to talk about this shit like all the time. Like you could, you could click on Dick Cavett and they talk about this stuff. You could, or like on the Mike Douglas show yeah. or, um, any of the stuff and they just talk about it and but it's like you know four plus decades of demobilization and and de-education and just and everything else is like we don't you know we are discover we dis- we are discovering the old ways rediscovering the old ways and except we are technically in many senses in many uh, respects we're a lot worse off than they were back then even though or at least we have better communication tech now well, of course which is also used for distraction but that's another uh, that's another issue well, I'll say that uh, when the Communist Party of the United States was active in organizing the labor unions, uh, uh, there was a higher chance that someone understood the source of profits and the conditions of production in the average working class than, than a college graduate today does. So that's just yeah, uh, I bet that's very sadly true. That is, and there you go. And you know. and on that sour note, we'll take a quick break and we'll <laughs> be back. A motion has been made uh, has um, to talk about to at least define what heterodox economics is. 
So, right. so just to start, I would say that um, heterodox economics is a big tent uh, that has many different strands and like schools of thought within it. You know, you can list them: Marxian economics, post-Keynesian economics. You know, black political economy, feminist economics, ecological economics. It's not Austrian. Yeah, we're not we're not going to put the Austrians in there. Um, we're not going to sort of legitimize uh, libertarian economics, <laughs> such um, as it is. But uh, but what unifies all of these different sort of um, heterodox schools is their sort of rejection of mainstream theory at at its core, uh, which is to reject the sort of utility theory value and its associated um, theory of distribution, which mm -hmm. essentially means we live in the best of all possible worlds. So mm -hmm. heterodox economists, while they have different sort of points of emphasis, depending on the school of thought, just sort of roundly reject this idea that, um, you know, prices are the sort of signal of value and that everyone is sort of just just fine, you know, even if there is inequality. It's still the best you can do. So... I think that's that's sort of the core of it. Um, there's many other there's many sort of ways you can extend upon that to tell different stories, but yeah, and it, and it fundamentally rejects all of the standard theories, just you know, standard academic theories of how capitalism works. Everything, even supply and demand, at least uh, from from yeah, my Mitch's uh, training, at least <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we we reject it as as a useful uh, concept. So it's got alternative. Uh, Ideas about what determines prices, you know, minutia, what determines prices, uh, how businesses make decisions about outputs, that sort of. Uh, uh, on the macroeconomic side, it sort of rejects this idea that there are concepts such as like natural rates of interest mm. that that um, make the economy sort of Goldilocks, neither too hot nor too you know cold, just just right. You know, it sort of it sort of says that's just mysticism. Um, based upon sort of a faith and you know the priestly wisdom of macroeconomists, but so like the 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 macroeconomists, I I think you know like 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 any good hustler, the best hustlers believe what they're saying. You know what yeah. I mean? Like like so like the notion of a natural rate of interest. Why do they believe? That? <laughs> well, because they they want to believe. What's in their hearts? Tell me. That's well, a good question. Yeah, that's that's really good. So let's go back to this idea that. Um, that you know, with the rise of industrial society, you've you've lost a um, governing um, a higher power of control mm -hmm. and authority to appeal to, mm -hmm. um, and so you've substituted uh, sort of a deistic faith in like sort of order um, and sort of outcome. Even pre-deistic, <clears throat> you think yeah. uh, medi yeah. medieval uh, yeah. uh, great chain of being? I think I, I can't. I, well, I, I you could even see it in Newton, really. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah, like a, yeah. A, so, so there's this idea that there are natural systems, and it's appeal to natural law. It's yeah. very Lockean. Even Darwin. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, Darwin's, you know, there's there's a sort of scientific appeal to a certain science that has natural order to it. Um, and so I think for the economists that like this concept of a natural rate. They do. They yeah. want to believe that if you can just figure out how to design the system just so, it'll take care of itself and everyone will be just as well off. And it's and it's wrapped up with the notion that's like we were saying before that the market replaces the notion of control. So the natural rate is you know especially the natural rate of interest specifically is a balancing out of individuals' desires, 
to save versus to not save. So it's this notion that first it's that construction of how, in that instance, finance works and household decisions on savings and income, that sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, it's that construction and then the natural rate is placed there to suggest <clears throat> that within that construction there is a, a, you know, a sweet spot. Uh, right. To it. So there's there's underlying components in any of these natural rates of unemployment or interest or anything else uh, in which you've kind of you've already constructed in a way that's somewhat ideological, one could say. I read about I read a thing about this recently, but Nietzsche has a concept called the will to a system, and you know Nietzsche is very critical of the Western philosophical tradition in general, and uh, I'm going to bring this to economics, so. So just try to follow me down this train. It might, it might, this might go wrong. But he basically was trying to diagnose a person like, let's say, like, uh, like Hegel or um, Kant as someone, or or his favorite punching bag, Socrates, like as someone who was so so tied to the need for to systematize the world that they would believe any sort of number of fantasies about the world to convince themselves of it is that the sort i mean do you think that there's a there's a psychology in economics that 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 makes uh, certain eco uh, economists gravitate towards the the desire to systematize in such a way to satisfy their own inner need for mm. order and control in the world. A product of compulsion or reflective of compulsion? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. I mean, I think... And that's if that's not an interesting question, we can move on. Oh, the, no, it, it, yeah, well, that and I also wanted to... Uh, one thing we should add, just to, uh, it's after you guys finish in, answering this, uh, if you could shade in about why we brought up heterodox economics, like your own particular connection to Good it. Question. or That's actually better. Maybe we should stick okay. a pin in the thing. I okay, yeah, said. so like stick a pin in, in Socrates and systematization. I just always want to talk about Nietzsche. Can, uh, can you guys bring, uh, you know, shed a little light onto um, why your your own particular interest or like what uh, or like you know your connection to heterodox economics or like why you'd want to, why, why you would what either you're attracted to it or why do you think it, it was it's necessary to bring to bring that into you know this conversation? Um, let me just say a few words before I leave. Um, uh, I think the. Fundamentally, is uh, the, no, uh, the fact that the heterodox uh, paradigm is so inclusive, expansive, and includes so much of uh, social scientists, so many of the social scientists in so many uh, disciplines, uh, broadens and also uh, give um, lots of depth to uh, heterodox. Um, the fact that uh, they emphasize history, culture, and, and economics, and politics, things that the neoclassical model has historically shied away. They just, one of the major problems that Marx indeed had with, uh, with uh, the so-called classical uh, was indeed that, and he called them. Uh, he called that uh, vulgar economy, which basically means superficially explained economics with no connection to history, culture, 
and institutions. Institutions, indeed. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I would say, you know, just along those lines, I am drawn. I was drawn to heterodox economics primarily because I was a veteran of of you know the, the war in Afghanistan, and I came back to school after my my term of service, and I was like keenly interested in the forces, the geopolitical forces that connected me to that experience and and the prospects for for what cl- closure means in that sense. And so I needed to understand what was going on there. And I thought, oh, okay, take an economics course. Why well, I, I went down this rabbit trail and heterodox economics sought to, you know, synthesize um, or maybe synthesize isn't the best word. It sought to sort of draw together um, interdisciplinary approaches to history um, society, philosophy, you know, and sort of, you know, political economy Absolutely. to make sense of, of why it is that a particular military project goes on in a particular place and time. Correct. And Correct. and so yeah. for me, and I continue to stay interested, in it, even though I'm not really in yeah. academia anymore, because um, it is through heterodox economics that you can answer questions about why workers are paid less than they're worth, uh, why the environment's being spoiled, and what we can do about it. Uh, that sort of the neoclassical model doesn't really have much of an answer for, and if they have an answer, but it's not going to it's not going to deliver the goods. Which explains uh, precisely, Mitch, why uh, Jeremy asked why how we got here. The ignorance, the amount of ignorance in mainstream economics, actually helped get us exactly where we are today, uh, where a mafia state is controlling our. Our country. Uh, we have a president that is surrounded uh, by his uh, very inner circle and relatives. He doesn't trust anyone but his family, and that is exactly why uh, all, all those developments that we have had in last some decades. That is the dominance of neoclassical and their ignorance about power structure it simply did us to where we are today and how we move forward is a very good question and I think there is no way other than two options that I have thought about one is for the long run we build grassroots organizations for a revolution to come but of course many of us are old and we can't wait that long <laughs> to be happy. So in the interim, we demand reforms. And those reforms will be along the socialist agenda, which will begin with campaign finance reforms, cutting off corporate uh, grip on American economy, and further, we have to really impose term limits on all state officials, from state and federal officials, elected officials, so that no politician will stay in power too long to be corrupted and be bought out by corporate interests and take us where we are today, mafia's, mafia state. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> 
Mafia state. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, real quick, because you have to take off. Um, Yusuf, do you have any? Do you have any suggestions for our viewing audience for stuff that they should check out if they want to? You know, uh, if you were interested about this, and the, the, the Library of Congress suggests the well, following titles. Uh, right. Excuse me. Not right off uh, my head, but. If you can, well, even even afterwards, if you can, like, I, just email you us. Recommend any blogs? Exactly. Perhaps? I do have yeah. a blog, and the blog includes a lot of references. And uh, so, my ecopoly, e c o p o l i, would be my blog page name or title. And if you blog that, uh, you would read articles where you find references to uh, topics like mafia state and mafianomics. And I, before I leave, I think uh, really in the past few decades, uh, we have, I equate this era to the era of Robert Barron's, except that with a slight change, I call it the era of mafia states. It's much worse than the era of Mafia, the era of uh, Robert Barron's. Here we have mafias controlling our, our government and in the White House. And that's myecopoly.com? Dot com. Okay. Thank you. M-Y-E-C-O-P-O-L-I dot com. Correction. M-Y-E-C-O-P-O-L-I dot blogspot dot com. Right. The, check, uh, folks, check the show notes. The, or, there will be a link in there. Thank you. Well, so thank much. you for awesome. being here. Thank you very much. It was awesome. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, what is to be done? Um, yeah, what is to. <laughs> All these problems. So, you see, that's something. how you know we're not left-leaning. We all got that joke. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking yeah, I have New no, Yorker. I have, I have yeah, we, no, no idea what, what that's a reference to at all. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Dude, well, I uh, feel sheepish then. No. Um, yeah, Google it. Uh, so, so yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple dimensions here. There's the sort of, um, you know, political education and ideological ideological structure and i think you know in some sense there's always a hope that if you can just train people to think differently then you can have a better system and that's why those of us who sort of try to teach heterodox economics um offer an alternative perspective uh to think more critically uh eric and i have been partners uh on a uh a textbook project that's open source um that uh, builds off of a, it's an OpenStax model um, microeconomics textbook, but we've, we and some others have written some, some substantial content that's distinctly heterodox. Um, and, you know, we'll put that in the show notes, and that's freely accessible for anyone who wants to, to learn on their own. Rock. Um, you know, I, I it, frankly, none of this matters, though, unless, it, unless you're sort of able to connect it to the struggle. Um, and the political projects that are ongoing. And, you know, you cannot fast forward to the revolution, quote, uh, without doing some work. And um, and there is some really interesting work going on right now uh, at, you know, at the federal level, but also state and local initiatives. So let me, let me just plug some stuff going on at the federal level that I think is interesting. Go for it. Um, so there's an organization uh, that's made up of some friends of mine, but they're really good people, not just because they're friends of mine, but they're really smart and they're really energetic and they're, they're moving the needle on things. And it's called the modern money network. Hmm. Um, 
And uh, these these people uh, who sort of run that organization, I'm going to name drop a few people, Rowan Gray, Raul Carrillo, uh, Nathan Cedric Tankus, um, Scott Ferguson, and others. Um, they're, 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 they're lawyers, they're um, activists, they're academics. And what they're trying to do is is change the way we think about um, how money enters the economy um, and what the federal government can do with it. Um, and they're trying to move the conversation past this idea that you have to go after rich people uh, for money to, to solve the um, social programs that you want to pursue. Uh, and they're trying to decenter rich people from the power structure and say, well, you actually don't need their money. You can simply use the levers of the fiscal policy machine to create deficits to, to um, if, if necessary, to achieve uh, direct investment in social programs like Medicare for All, student debt relief, and you know a Green New Deal. Mm. And so they're trying to change the way we think about this because uh, progressives or liberal politicians are just enamored with this idea that you have to be a little more serious than the Republicans yeah. when it comes to the budget. Uh, and only reason will prevail, right? And then yeah. they, they want to reinstitute the pay-go rules. Yeah, capital R yeah, reason. we, we got to tighten our belts like all the families are doing around. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's just off. fundamentally flawed. And if we had more time, we would talk about why that's flawed, but you can take my word for it right now. Um, so that's that's an MMT thing, okay? It is yeah. an MMT yeah, thing. Okay. Yeah, okay, so I didn't... Yeah, I, I wish we could... I wish we had more time to talk about that, but okay. We could do another MMT episode. I would love to do. That. If we're going to do that, I'm, I want to have. Uh, I want to. I want to like, contact uh, Varn and see if we can get him to call in because like, he's got an opinions and would be uh, an interesting resource to have on that too. But anyway, so, so they are, but but so it's not just you know the MMT people and the sort of money people. Uh, there's different. Uh, I wouldn't say factions, but there's different points of emphasis. Some people just kind of like the idea of low taxes and yet be able to do the thing. Um, and they're very just, very much just interested in like, okay, well, let's talk about very sterile macro accounting identities. Uh, but the friends of mine that I've mentioned by name here uh, who are sort of vested in this MM Modern Money Network project are explicitly connecting it to things like immigration um, rights. Uh, nice. The right to a job guarantee, and they're 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 you know so like um, there was an article, in I think Teen Vogue, which is a resource I suggest everyone read. It's one of the most radical magazines how, right how now. How does that? How did that happen? Because because we are, we are blessed from above. Right? <laughs> because 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 Moderna, there was an there was an article posted today of. I cannot remember the philosopher. I'll look up his, I'll look up his name, but but it was another Croatian philosopher. Um, it was uh, David Broder, not the David Broder you're thinking of because he's dead. But David, the David Broder, the young David Broder, the younger, the one who wrote for Jack, Jacobin, interviewed both a Croatian philosopher who was a co-writer with with Zizek and a couple of things, and Pamela Anderson on the uh, on the yellow jacket, the yellow vest, um, oh, yeah. re, um, revol revolt slash revolution slash rebellion that's going on in Paris right now. Modernity is very, very weird, people. Um, we're not we're not quite to that crisis breaking point, um, but um, we're always twirling, twirling, twirling towards it. Yeah, when when Pamela Anderson is taking a quasi-Maoist take, then you know things are interesting. <laughs> yeah, like I said, that's, that's some weird... I mean, there's... <laughs> I don't even want to because it's kind of a thing. Where at one point, like she was like hanging. Uh, yeah, she got a lot. Who knows what's going on with that? It's like it's. You want to talk about? Yeah, but this thing. At one point, you need a uh, who is the most uh, in, the more be bewildering bewildering political evolution. Her or Kanye? But 
<laughs> anyway, so, sorry. You know, yeah. only historians will be able to answer that question, Jeremy. <laughs> so, uh, so I just wanted to like just just point out that if you are at all if you at all care about the immigration struggle. Um, the relationship between international capital flows and the movement of peoples, the relationship between climate change and the movement of peoples, um, and then student loan debt relief and all of those things, then you need to be following the modern money network people. It's absolutely critical. Um, I've used up a lot of airtime. Eric, do you want to... Oh no! I was I actually was hoping you'd just keep going because <laughs> well, no on your, oh, yeah on the topic of like we've talked about like how things are how should they be or how, how things you know um, one of the things that I that I'd wanted to, that I uh, one of the ideas that I'd wanted to do with this particular episode was talk about like um, not only you know like a Marxist view of like what economics is or at least the take on like how it's talked about but it's like you know how should it be talked about how should it be oh. because I think like, we, we we mentioned power very early on and it's one of those things where it, again you know that, that could bring uh, involve its own like fuck we could get three episodes out of that um, do you want to do the uh, scarcity versus surplus take yeah actually I I got a couple of things that are I think maybe worth sharing go for it. Uh, on this one, so this is this is a constant struggle. The whole notion of, of heterodox economics is fairly recent. I think the term didn't really start getting used till maybe the seventies, sixties, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, by at least in the UK, at least uh, by by the fifties or so, this neoclassical, the mainstream theory has uh, kind of. Uh, taken over, and certainly by the 70s, at least in the U.S., uh, that's the case. So that, in its own right, is kind of a uh, political struggle. And I've been having these conversations back in Kansas City uh, about how to teach um, economics. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting was the way you the, the way you recreate economists is through PhD programs, give them a PhD, then they go teach people. Some of the people they teach go on to get economics, uh, PhDs, and so forth. <laughs> the so- but social reproduction theory of economics. It's exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. I mean, why should the, it be any different, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of the one of the interesting arguments that kind of finally formulated uh, for me about a year ago was when you're teaching economics, you're told you have to teach the mainstream neoclassical stuff. Doesn't matter whether you believe it. Most of us don't believe it. Most of us know it's bullshit, but you have to teach that. You have to teach that at the undergraduate level because some of the students will go on to grad school and they'll need to have been taught the neoclassical material as undergraduates. And it was only uh, recently that somebody said, well, in grad school, you have to teach the neoclassical material because those people will go on to become teachers of economics, <laughs> and they'll need to be able to teach exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they'll need to be able to teach the neoclassical material that they'll be forced to teach in uh, totality in, trap in their jobs. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It's a power structure. It's ideology wrapped around it, so most people don't realize what it is, which makes it in its own right a fundamentally political uh, struggle as well. Uh, yeah, remind you of uh, I can't remember where I read this, but someone's talking about how econom- uh, economics right now in in most places um, is taught for. I mean, it's taught at you know people who go into school for economics are pretty much taught to be you know uh, cheerleaders for economics as opposed to like you know whereas the ruling class sends their kids to business school and in the business schools they have their own like you know economics for business school majors or something so. 
Yeah, I, I remember Richard Wolff uh, made that argument at some points. That I think the way he put it was there's there's two programs that talk about businesses, markets, that sort of thing. Business school teaches you how to be in a business, run a business. Uh, economics program teaches you why it's okay what you're doing with that business. Yeah. They're like the, the legitimizers, bad. basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's right. They are the legitimizers. Because I, you know, I, I have an accounting degree, and what you get is basically microeconomics and accounting. There's this thing called managerial accounting, and you basically learn, you know, uh, you know, what maybe an undergraduate might know about microeconomics. You know, uh, you oh, learn yeah, so much more than that, though. Like as an accounting student, you're actually learning how to how to like add up uh, so things balance, and. <laughs> And, and you actually need to account for costs and revenues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a microeconomics course, you get to sort of wave your hand and say, well, in optimality, no one earns any profits. That's just totally absurd. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, would, I would submit that an accounting student is a better uh, candidate for a heterodox economics degree right. down the road. Well, then I'm going to do it. Yeah. Most, most yeah. accounting majors don't realize – Economists, most of us have never taken an, an uh, accounting class. Yeah. Whereas I doubt there are any accounting majors that weren't forced to take. An <laughs> That's a good point. Like if, point. if we had a whiteboard here, I could I could derive um, just a very simple macroeconomic uh, series of identities that would show you that um, when the public sector runs a deficit, the private sector runs a surplus because mm-hmm. of double entry accounting. Right. Um, and you know sort of you have there's the rest of the world and that that affects those two balances but it's in the abstract the relationship is when the federal government runs the deficit the rest of us save yeah because one person's debt is another person's asset right Right. and maybe that's why i understand those concepts yeah. easier than other mm-hmm. people like uh um yeah maybe that's it maybe so it really i mean has, i'm just thinking of uh maybe a, i should be thankful for my accounting degree yeah uh, yeah a book uh, a book we've recommended before but worth checking out at least at least for the few chapters that i was able to get through before i had to return to the library is um i think it's uh james kwan's economism economism i think it's called which is effectively he talks about how like the entire i mean it's it's it's, it's he expanded it from a, a couple essays that he wrote but it's like how uh like certain ideas from econ 101 are taken uh, like supply and demand and like the supply curves which you know used to be like they those were kind of like you know th- thrown towards the back of the textbook and not really referred to all of a sudden got, you know somehow you know funny how these things work got dragged to the front of it and became like the only um the you know the, the very very basic degraded like econ concepts became like the only thing that were ever really taught or emphasized or and more importantly like whenever they bring like these you know economists on you know on like chat shows or CNN or whatever they would only refer to these very like like I said very like kind of like very skewed you know what are supposed to be very like you know abstract econ models as if you know this is well you know they're well these are empirical this is how the world the world actually works and he just talked about the process of like you know this certain belief much like how scientism is a belief of like you know new atheist types um that you know the only you know only this certain view of whatever is how the you know the entire universe should be defined similarly you know economism is uh, is likewise so like i said check out james kwan's okay. kwan's book yeah there was a i don't remember where i heard this but uh, uh like wittgenstein um 
was talking to a friend of his, or I, this could be apocryphal, so forgive me if it is, but just as long as it's entertaining. Uh, and, and 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 they were talking about you know the 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 realization that the Earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. And Wittgenstein said something to the effect of like, "Well, what would it have looked like if 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 it were the way that they said?" And it was like it would have looked exactly the same. You know what I mean? Like like. Um, uh, that there's this notion that people walk around and they feel like they understand how things work because somebody else understands how things work. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think that's kind of how, to some degree, uh, what would you call it, orthodox economics works? Like, like, mm-hmm. well, these people understand it, so obviously, as, yeah, I can scoff at anyone who says something different. Yeah, as long, yeah, my faith is as long, you know, my faith is rest- is upheld by the fact that as long as there are capital E experts in the world who, you know, they they know what they're talking about, so let's we'll, we will defer to them and have them on our Sunday shows to explain certain things. Um, yeah. Getting back to the Alan Greenspan thing. Um, yeah, then you know, then all is right. Since you guys have taught the stuff, how would a, how would a uh, a curriculum or even like a basic intro intro education look if you actually started teaching? I you know bringing in concepts of, of power into uh, teaching you know undergrads about this stuff. I'm glad you asked, Eric. <laughs> even like like I said, from like I mean like this like be it from like you know basically I mean even like. We'll bring up Foucault again, but or you know, how would that actually look? Well, um, Eric has a lot more experience than I do because uh, he's taught probably um, many orders of magnitude more courses than I have. Uh, but that being said, like I think um, the way that we constructed our textbook, which we're gonna we're gonna put this in the show notes by the way, and you should download a copy, uh, is we sort of start by framing economics as the science of social provisioning. And so we say, rather than it's just the economy, like we're going to study how the economy works, we sort of say, well, there are economies. There are systems of social reproduction, systems of production. Um, and we, we like to think of that as uh, a process of social provisioning. And so when you do it that way, and you, you start at the very beginning, um, you're essentially taking the supply and demand models and you're putting them at the back of the back of the book where they belong. And you're saying... at in the very beginning, you have this thing called the economic problem. And, you know, Bob Heilbroner, the late Heilbroner, had a textbook called The Economic Problem. Uh, it's long since out of print. Um, but, you know, what the economic problem is, is like, how is it that a society can reproduce itself? How is it that the sort of institutions, whether they're the price system or they're sort of voluntary systems of exchange, whatever system you're describing, how is it that that system reproduces itself? Uh, given the nexus of social relationships, right? Um, you know, given technology and social relationships, how do we talk about how people get their daily bread, you know, and then go on and then sort of pursue other avenues as a species and as, as a, a set of cultures? Uh, so you start there. And, and what you find is that you're talking about production of a surplus. Okay. And then the next problem is, well, how do you divide that surplus? Okay, and so so the classical political economists had a way of talking about this, uh, and that there's been some heterodox developments on how to talk about that. But but then we also say, well, the neoclassical economists also have a way to talk about that, but they don't start from a position of surplus; they start from a position of scarcity. So if you start from a position of scarcity, then you're already in a world that says, well, any change from the status quo means we're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. Any change in the status quo means we're distorting an otherwise perfect equilibrating system, and then we're you know just like you know it's going to be chaos. 
That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to say that that was a very like a very uh, succinct way to put that. That was what, what I was going to say was going to be as good, but <laughs> say it. Yeah. we'll say it. Yeah. No, it was, no it's, problem. But you've had all the practice, the Eric, and uh, you know how do students typically respond to that sort of setup? No, that was that was better than I could say <laughs> by any means. Uh, no, in in terms of just practical experience, you know, um, a lot of this is there are ideologies that even a young you know seventeen year old student is going to be coming into a classroom uh, with. They're going to have ideologies about how the market does something that's supposed to be, you know, optimal for people, that's, that profit-seeking is good, that businesses are, are innovative, that sort of thing. Uh, and your standard way of teaching, uh, especially in undergraduates, economics course, and I'm thinking mostly micro because that's kind of my area, but you could talk about similar things in macro. Uh, your standard neoclassical way of teaching that really just reinforces those ideas. Anybody who comes into a class thinking, ah, businesses create value for people in the form of the utility they get, uh, maybe they didn't have a way of articulating that before that class. By the end of that class, they do now. And we also have reports that say by the end of that class, uh, they're shitty people. They're, <laughs> and then you find studies. them on Twitter, they're, and then they say, well, you know, actually, uh, exactly. have you ever uh, taken Econ 101? Facts about your feelings. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, or or God forbid they go get their PhDs and they come up on the yeah. uh, what's the, the the jobs forum for uh, economists? Uh, the, no, I'm, I won't say it. I, I won't publicize. It's, it. it's the worst mm. uh, website ever. You thought it's right like it's like uh, it's like four chan for, for 4chan. one of the economists. Yeah. <laughs> oh Christ! Uh, but you know one yeah, of the things only yeah only their memes are worse. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I won't say it on, on the air. Uh, one of the things yeah. I've found is you know you can you can do that in reverse. People come into economics presumably thinking you know what about corporate power standard neoclassical uh, approach to economics basically doesn't address that or addresses it in a very limited uh, capacity so you can come in and say as part of the social provisioning process kind of a uh, perspective say all right we're looking at corporate power now we can look at pricing we can look at advertising we can look at any number of uh, different components market governance. what about what about consumerism you know, your your neoclassical approach uh, says, well, we consume the things we like, and that grates. Uh, but I think most people not are after probably, a certain year, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but most people are coming in and saying, or I think they're going to say, why am I lined up, you know, at Black Friday at three in the morning, uh, or or that sort of thing? Why is it that I'm consuming all this stuff that is clearly killing me? Speaking of which, I need a cigarette. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So you can leverage those those ideas, but that's the name of the game. Economics, especially teaching it, is fundamentally uh, trying to explain the world, but within an ideological context that, you know, we didn't create, that's, that's here already. Mm. Another way that I like to talk about this stuff, and, I, you know, by doing so, I hope it gets us to a better place, is to sort of poke a hole early on in the, um, what, you know, one of my professors... Uh, John Henry used to used to describe as uh, the the universalist principle, mm -hmm. and which is uh, it is uh, this idea that there are certain um, there are certain sort of laws of economics, but laws of society and more generally that are universal, and it might take a whole long bit of history to get there, but you will eventually get there. So it's this sort of end of history idea, uh, and it's this idea that you know sort of. You know, in earlier stages of human development, you haven't yet figured out that you need markets, but then eventually you figure out that you need markets, and then once you figured it out, you've done. 
and you're as good as you'll ever be. Um, and, you know, concepts like little fairy tales like, oh, in the beginning we had some seashells and then we traded the seashells and we bartered and then right. we eventually figured out that gold was a good medium of exchange instead of bartering. And then we created money. Like, that's all false. It's not it's not supported by the historical record in any way. Yeah. But it's it's a universalist principle because it says that eventually you get to a place where we're at today. And any deviation from where we're at today means we're just going backwards. Mm-hmm. And it means that you can't have social change. There is no alternative. Exactly. It is Tina yeah. on steroids. Yeah, what, well, it's the uh, the best of possible worlds, right, yeah. that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that Pangloss. So it's, it's, pan, it's Panglossian yeah, economics. Yeah. yeah. That's what we should call it. And one of the reasons that's so insidious is that uh, that's not the, the actual enterprise of, of neoliberalism is not, hey, the market's here. Everything's great. You know? No. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier on uh markets can be perpetually created you can turn your car into uh a small business through uber and that is the kind of the the uh cultural kind of trend at this point um is this stuff's so great and it's universal and it's the end of history but also history keeps going it just keeps (laughs) going further into this end of history uh you know so neoliberalism is an ideological project, uh, but that has material ends. And mm. so uh, the end for neoliberals is to, is to produce the sort of world that Marx talked about as destroying capitalism, but not yet let it be destroyed. Uh, while convincing us that um, is that it we're just at the end to get of history. to that point and like pull the reins back just a little bit, and then we're it's, like, we got it. It's this belief that like you know I, I, can, I, can, I can do heroin one more time. <laughs> that's what it is uh, that's the best right. way awesome it probably won't kill me yeah and on that note uh, let's do one more let's let us uh, let's begin to wrap up these things uh, I think we try to do on the show uh, regularly with with each episode is to have uh, have a segment if we have time to do uh, recommendations and endorsements if there's anything you've been digging on that you really want to share with the viewing audience you think folks could be, it can be related to our uh, our topic of this evening or it can be not you know just completely out of the blue doesn't matter you you you, it's something that you would that you have really been enjoying and you think more people should uh could you please um you know give some uh give some endorsements of some stuff and um go i usually volunteer to start in case unless someone's got something queued up that they're ready to say go for it dude okay uh, I'm reading a book right now because I uh, am a bad leftist and I don't know anything about the uh, the Russian Revolution. So I'm reading a book right now called October Song by Paul LeBlanc, and it's pretty good. And I'm getting lots of information. Uh, who, who do you know who uh, published it or who put it out? Haymarket. Good. As a matter of fact, I do know Jeremy. Thank, Thank you. you for that quiz. Uh, <laughs> I well, I bring I, I I mention that because who is having a year end uh, sale? Oh, they are having a big year end sale. Not a sponsor of the podcast, but you know what? You know, friend, go, friend of the podcast? Yeah, not yet. Well, certainly, I would so welcome them with open they, they, arms. Goddamn uh, shelf or two of their of their products sitting right there. <laughs> so, any time, you know, come on, people, you're only up in Seattle. Um, otherwise, what else am I? I saw the last movie I saw in the theater was the. The new Halloween, which I thought was fucking kick-ass. If you like horror movies, that's a good one. Um, 
I think that's it. I think that's all I have to say. I can go next, I guess. Go for um, it. I've got several things that I'm super digging on right now. Um, so I, uh, I've been listening to the Eyes Left podcast. Um, I'm sort of a late late comer to that, which is ironic because I'm a veteran. But like, um, that is a that is a sweet sweet lefty veteran podcast. There are at least two really good uh, leftist veteran podcasts: Eyes Left mm-hmm. and uh, a Hell of a Way to Die. Yeah, so I've I've been listening to Eyes Left and it's been it's been pretty sweet. Um I've been sort of recently trying to get um with my comrade uh Josue uh trying to get a veterans caucus at the DSA here off the ground. So if anyone's listening and wants to join, do it. Uh we're gonna do some cool shit in Portland. Um so I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption as well, too, number two. <laughs> And my favorite thing to do is go around and find the KKK and just just fucking stab him with my knife. <laughs> it's, it's it's so nice. I, I'm not advancing in the game because I'm just like constantly searching for you know more 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 clansmen. And do like, they have like is it like me- like Metal Gear Solid Five like levels of like stealth where you just kind of sneak up and like like shiva dude or what? I don't think it's that systematic, but it is like um, you can definitely tell people are more alarmed when you do that. Sure. <laughs> if you come in with a like a sawed off shotgun, they're like, "Oh my god, what are you doing? You're you're upsetting our little party in the woods." But it's like if well, I just go and want s- some pageantry with, uh, with yeah, yeah, right? yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not quite the scene from uh, Django Unchained, but yeah. uh, but close enough. <laughs> Because we are here today watch, for a watch. very special occasion. Yeah, woohoo! It is yeah. imperative that we reestablish sanity and supremacy before it is too late. Our numbers are waning. Oh, There was also a dude where um, he was like he was like peddling um, in like one of the more like the bigger cities in that game. Uh, he was like peddling eugenics, uh, and at one point I was just like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> I explain using real science why we whites are under attack and what we must do to fight back. Under attack? Yes, under attack. People aren't the same, sir. And then I antagonized him. Then he like took off running, and then I stabbed him with my knife. So, <laughs> not down with that. So changing history, and the, and thus the the eugenics movement never took hold in the uh, early uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. America. That's right. And then finally, uh, I just now just now learned how to use like Instagram stories on my phone, and I've just been taking a lot of pictures of my cat or my girlfriend's cats. Way to go! Yeah, excellent. I drew a picture of a cat. Yeah, the, oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. I know, I've been watching that come along. Though. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Do you have any? Uh, I have very little, other than I uh, really, I really want to buy a PlayStation so I can play Red Dead Redemption. But I don't think you Julia will let me. Well, and if you did, you'd probably like fail at your job because it's going to take yeah, all I'd the time. Yeah, get nothing. Yeah, done. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's the plan. That's, That's why I don't play them. Yeah, I uh, I bought a you I bought a U well a, a near used PS3. Expressly to play Red Dead Redemption One. Oh, that's on the PS3 too. Well, no, not two. No, no. I mean, but it's also on the PS3. I had it for Xbox back in the day. Yes, it was. Okay, a, it is on the PS3, but it was, was a like thing. A, 
who's on first. Uh, yeah, yeah. What's, yeah. On, what's yeah. on second? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, well, that was the thing. It was, it was why I wanted a. Uh, like I said, I was, I've been a computer gamer, but I did. But I did. I did want. I was like, okay, I want to. I want a console just to. Well, also to play like you know Shadow of the Colossus and, and Eco, but mainly Red Dead Redemption. In fact, it's even uh, bought a. Um, a in fact, that I have. To, I now have to return it to Craigslist. A recumbent bike that you see sitting over there behind the couch, just to you know, kind of like okay, you know, it's that's that's the exercise system is to you know sit on the recumbent bike, pedal at a at a high. Uh, uh, had a high level of difficulty and uh, watch your little virtual cowboy ride as horse around uh, <laughs> 1910, 1911 uh, uh, yeah. American West. Yeah. So if you can incorporate it with your workout regimen. Yeah, that's something. Or or while you're smoking. I, I, don't, don't, I, don't, I don't have a workout regimen, but I can <laughs> smoke cigarettes while That's I'm what doing. I'm saying. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'm trying to help fit it into <laughs> well, your lifestyle. Any amount of cardio that I'm you do while smoking coach. is more intense. Yeah, <laughs> or, or even like, like I said, yeah. Or even like I said, to bring it back to uh, me, yeah, Medical Gear Solid Five, where cigarette smoking is an is an active game mechanic. So, <laughs> oh yeah. I was talking to my wife yesterday about how I I remembered that I used to just smoke cigarettes while I was skateboarding when I was a teenager, just yeah. like like That's working a- hard and then like, yeah. with a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. What was I doing? That's, that's as bad as like you know, like when like when the when the when the ash storms in port in uh, in Portland during the summer, and like I had coworkers who would uh, who would commute to work by bike, and it was like something like it was like like the equivalent of like like what like. like I can't remember if it was. I think it was like either smoking eight cigarettes at once, or or was it like eight packs at a, at a, during the day? I don't know. It was, it was like a thousand nine eleven. Yeah, you know, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah. I got bronchitis one of those years from biking to work. That was fucking stupid as shit. Uh, anywho, well, you don't do it during the rain, but um, uh, I'll, uh, I will go last. I will recommend. There's a band out of, uh, I think, out of Manchester. I can't remember out of Manchester, but a band out of England called uh, the, the Smiths. Spe- <laughs> <laughs> no, although I do have, I, I finally bought a, uh, I bought a, uh, a, I bought a good tremolo pedal, so I can uh, do, I can uh, do Johnny Mars uh, oh, tremolo shit if, uh, um, if need be. No, it's uh, there's a there's a band out of out of uh, the UK called Spiel, either I think they're called the Spielbergs or just called Spielbergs. They just put out a single called Four A.M., which is excellent, and it sounds like. I attribute if Lou Barlow from Dinosaur Jr. had joined um, Japan Droids, which is very like kind of like post punk indie, but with like where like the the, the bass player is actually do, lead, doing the melodic lead on his bass, kind of like John Entwistle, something like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's great stuff. I'll play a little clip of it now. So yeah, check out uh, check out Spielberg's on uh, Bandcamp and and uh, almost it's on Soulseek. <laughs> uh, no, on Spotify. Soulseek Soul still exists. <laughs> still exists. 
Um, uh, television shows. It was uh, a file sharing thing from a thousand years ago. It. It, no, it, but it's still active. It's kind of it's it, it's a file sharing thing, but like for music uh, for music freaks by music freaks. Uh, also, we'll recommend checking out. It has recently been discontinued, but the television series that uh, Rachel and I started watching the first few episodes of Detroiters, which is a, was a Comedy Central. Um, sitcom written, done by a lot of like SNL writers who are very much you can definitely tell like it is f- from people who are from Detroit as some of the jokes in there it's like okay um, like they they will have like death in the MC5 uh, playing you know in the in the soundtrack of the shows or like you'll see like bottles of like Fago floating around or a couple other things and it's a it's it's pretty good it's it's it is far more. Um, you can see there's actually you can definitely tell between the two the two leads that they're actually like friends in real life. I say this now, it probably turns out they were just they were just randomly cast at the end or whatever. Both no, but Detroiters. It's, what's that? They're just from Detroit. Right? Yeah, they're just Detroit. But it's also but it's kind of a thing where the the show is has far more absurdist jokes than you would ever want to you would ever expect from a uh, like a like a Comedy Central sitcom done by Comedy Central people. So I will recommend that. And last but not least, I will recommend. Um, Let's say I am just now starting Black Marxist by Cedar Robertson. Sure. Uh, came out uh, in 83, published 83, 84. Oh, also both at the end of the year, both Verso books and Haymarket books are having their year end. Um, again, insane book sale, ebook and hardcover. You buy, you buy a hard copy, you get a free, you get an ebook free with that which means you you know buy a copy put it on your reader use the hard copy and to if need be literally browbeat your friend into reading it um i may have actually done that once um it's worthwhile so check those out links will be in the notes you can signal with your hard with your actual copies physical copy you can signal that you're a good leftist that's true even if you haven't read the book so, oh, did I leave my copy of this right here? Excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Uh, final words. It, um, it, should anyone in the viewing audience want to contact you, you guys want to leave any uh, bits of contact, or uh, you know, how how can folks find you in the extremely outside chance that they have a question or anything? Uh, my Twitter handle is Mitch Green NEP. Uh, I could just put my email address in the uh, links and the sure uh, what, what, fancy what, computer stuff. What, uh, wait, so like, what what, what what what's your email? Uh, it's just Eric N. Dean at uh, Gmail. Rock. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm at Comrade Garrett on Twitter. Don't bother. I haven't I haven't done a <laughs> thing. I haven't even looked at Twitter in weeks. Um, I'm playing at the Landmark Saloon tomorrow night. I know that. That will be good for the listening audience. Garrett has a band that play, he plays. They play at the Landmark. I play in a few bands, but uh, I'm playing at the Landmark tomorrow night uh, for, I guess, the people in this room. It's a three piece. We're doing country and western music from the classic heyday. So nice. Eight thirty to eleven thirty. Come down. And I mean, I'm really saying this to you guys. You, yeah. you should show up if you've got nothing going on. And if you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, none of you do. But just in case, you can reach us. We are at givingthemike at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon, uh-huh, uh, which if you somehow enjoyed what you heard and you would like to support us or even send us a little like one-time tip in uh, as a thank you for putting out such educational co- content, find us at patreon.com slash givingthemike. We are on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash givingthemike. Um, 
and uh, all the usual uh, outlets. Yeah, it's pretty much just usualoutlet.com slash giving the mic, and you'll find us there. All right. Um, Do you think we could we could try to like um, um, like goad Orthodox economists into like donating to the show? Good luck. I we, we, we could. <laughs> well, we could. Well, let's do. Well, it so well that's more. Of, I mean, as, as I was going to say, calling you know, calling having feuds with active economists is. I don't know if I could if I could like you know support an active beef because that seems like it would require a lot of effort. I mean, so it let, took. Let me sum it up. Here's what they would do: they would donate in mass to the Patreon and then say, "We now own your show." Ah, they would do that. because property rights, <laughs> and therefore we're going to shut yeah. you down. God damn it! But they would be wrong because they don't understand property rights. <laughs> And that's how it works, ladies and gentlemen. That's All right. how it works. That's how it works. The more you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, final words for the evening. Uh, shot them if you got them. Anyone have any pearls? Yeah. Uh, federal jobs guarantee is better than basic income. What? That's right. I think that's right. <laughs> I agree. Also, yeah. let's reduce uh, total working hours to like 25 a week. We can do that. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, All right. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and and all that and more. All right, thank you, ladies, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, stay tuned. We should be having. Uh, we have at least one more uh, podcast recording before the end of the year, uh, assuming I can get a couple of people to respond to their actual goddamn tw- Twitter messages. But we'll see. Um, yeah, that's a bit about it. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and good night. Good night. All right, and we're out. Fun. Awesome. That was fun. That was a lot of fun.
Home of Vulgaris is the leading cyberpunk dystopia stoner internet occult late capitalist adjective known Russian Bob Disinfo podcast. The future is now and it sucks. The algorithm is horny but has no desire. We desire to be like it. We offer ourselves up to the invisible machinery of late capitalism, hoping to make it horny for our content, our data, our entire lives and humanity. It's terrible. It's kind of sexy. Listen to Homo Vulgaris. Embrace gay space third impact luxury anime t-shirt communism. Better living through death drive army. Homo Vulgaris. Available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else fine podcasts are found. Sort of like a um, post-Alfusarian. Yeah, I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, Valabar is pretty good. Yeah, it's another thing. Like I have about two, um, about two. It's a problem with with Haymarket, and it's like with Steam games. In fact, it's, like, it, in fact, it's the exact same fifty uh, percent off. Week, yeah, it's the exact same model as Steam games. Is yeah. that both Haymarket and Verso uh-huh. do frequent like insane sales, yeah. and to the point where it's like. Yeah. Like I said, um, these shelves. Rec- it's uh, it's like these are the, the these are the, the sh- these shelves are the uh, yeah. yeah. These are the these are the st- the stacks of lies that I tell myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. This was great. Uh, what's your dog's name, by the way? My blog's name? No, no. What is My your dog's, dog's name? <laughs> uh, Marley. Molly. Marley. 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 Yes. Okay. You named your dog Marley. Yes, I did. Marley.com. Yes. yes. <laughs> Was that a Bob Dylan thing? Uh, Marley. No, no. Did you ever? Do you know what I happens at the end it. of the famous dog movie and book Marley and Bee? Exactly. No. <laughs> there is a well. There is a, uh, a. There is. Do you remember what happens at the end of Old Yeller? Yes. Okay. Spoilers. Uh, Wait, is that what happens to Marley? Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no. It's it's not it's not as rustic, but. <laughs> There is a uh, there is a book called Marley the Bad Dog, and I got the best Marley. <laughs> I just re- I just realized that's the that's that's our, that's gonna be our that, yeah that's our episode image that's our uh, nailed it. But yes, thank you, thank you very much My for uh, thank you, Yusuf. Thank you for, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank yes, thank you. I wish I could have stayed longer. No, that's fine. Yeah, we'll figure out a way to have Good you back you again. again. Yeah. See, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Much pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much.